Hi, and welcome to episode four of the UATX podcast, Forbidden Conversations, where we chat with interesting members of the Polaris Fellowship. My guest today is Shlomo Kappa, who's joining me from New York City, and I can't wait for this conversation. Shlomo is a graduate of University of Pennsylvania and Yale Law School. He has been a lawyer, although he may consider himself a reformed one. He's currently the CEO of his recently formed and very well-funded, I might add, biotech company, Weave.bio. So like and subscribe them. But without any more to do, I'll introduce the guest today, Shlomo Clapper. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Great to speak to you, Harry. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've listened to the episode before. It's definitely working its way up the charts. So you know how it goes. I just want to sort of go through your life, dig into some of the some of the things that I find interesting, sort of get a better understanding of you and hopefully the other fellows who tune in can get an understanding of what makes you tick. And then, of course, we finish off with a lightning round, which is my personal favorite and I know for many others as well. It's a pleasure to speak to you. But yeah, I'll kick it off from the from the early days. Fantastic. Did you grow up in New York? Like, tell me a little bit about your family, your parents. I mean, I guess they probably fit in the age group of <laughs> were they like post war emigres from Europe or yeah. So, so I grew up in Northern Jersey, and yeah. like Bruce Springsteen and Chris Christie, very proud of that. New yep. Jersey is a great state, which gets a bad rep. So. Also, Justice Samuel Alito is a very proud New Jersey New Jersey member. Apparently, says that his his dog is only happy when he goes back to New Jersey, which <laughs> the truth of which I cannot vouch for. <clears throat> but yeah, my my grandparents, all but one of them, are sort of post-war immigrants. One of my grandfather's a Yankee Doodle Dandy, but his father was an immigrant, and but my parents are sort of born in America. My dad's a physician. My mom's a teacher yep. of psychology. I have three siblings, two older and one younger. And I feel like a lot of this information could be used for like those identity check screens. So if someone's <laughs> trying to steal my identity, this would be a very like helpful segment for them. I guess I had like a, a fairly, on the surface, fairly standard childhood, but always kind of never really fit in ever, anywhere. Okay. And to to a certain extent, still continue not to, to to be a little bit of a misfit, like at schools or in camps, like never quite found my gel. Like I wasn't like, like I was a lot of the academic teams in high school. That's really where, that's really where I was rather than the sort of the sports teams. Hockey was a big thing in my high school, but uh, yeah. I was ne- not, ne- never quite like the, that type of sort of competitor anyway, but I, it was, I like, I, anyway, college, I, I think I found my stride quite more. Like I, I, I worked very hard in high school, actually more than I think I've ever worked, even as an associate in a, a law firm. Like I really yeah. was working quite, I was burning the midnight oil, working on all my courses, taking them very seriously. And we, we actually, well, I'll explain, Harry, I, I grew up, I went to a sort of yeshiva day school and yeah. they had a, a sort of a dual curriculum. So in the morning you learn Judaic subjects and then in the afternoon you learn secular subjects. So yeah. it was by the time I went to Penn and I had like, I don't know, 12 hours or 15 hours of class in a day, in a week, right? That's how the number of credits or number of hours. Like that was a relief for me. Like I was in high school, I had like 12 hours of class a day because I did extracurricular stuff. So I was like really working like a, I wasn't getting paid like a lawyer, but I was working like one in, in high school for sure. So I went to Penn. I like many who are in that era. I was like a, I think one of the sort of the the main through threads of my 
sort of life. And and if you look at my LinkedIn or uh, you see, it 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 seems it, it's very it, it's kind of like a one of my friends said, "Slomo, your resume is a Rorschach test." So it's like it's very it it it, it it's it's varied. It jumps from place to place. But I think the main through line is that for me, I'm kind of like oddly conscious of how limited our time is on earth and so harry should be very grateful i'm here and well and 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 much of that time is spent at work and i i guess growing up i I saw a lot of people around me who who kind of seemed stuck right they needed to pay for the ucb schools are private private schools so they're expensive and so they they kind of like were working very hard earned a certain amount but didn't feel like like all the careers I saw around me did not feel compelling to me they seemed quite banal and and I didn't I guess like one of the things that motivated me is not not wanting to get stuck if I'm going to be a little self-reflective which is why I kind of have jumped around a, a fair bit but but one of the things that I've but I but it's all for the purpose of trying to find a, a job where I can really be satisfied with spending the most valuable and limited of resources, which is our time. So I, one of the courses I actually, so I was thinking a lot about this. I came across some Paul Graham essays, and, but I really, it really clicked when I took a course in my second semester. So, so anyway, so in my freshman year, I was studying history. Like I, I, I ended up in a bunch of random classes. Like I, I ended up locked out of all the classes I wanted to take, which was a huge blessing because like I sat down with my friend Chaim Gvarao, who, who basically, as a junior, he knew, knew all the class. He helped me pick my classes. I took like intro to computer programming, to development, intro to computer programming and astronomy. And like two classes that I, I did quite well. And I actually had a conversation with him later in, in the, like the second semester. And he's like, oh, people don't get A pluses at Penn. And I'm like, not entirely true. I kind of know that. First, like, they I, do now. <laughs> they, they did. Like they did. I mean, if you get yeah. enough standard deviations above, I'm very good sort of at school. I love school, I love learning yeah. different things and tests are, but anyway, like, like many people who are at Penn or other places, we're like expert hoop jumpers. We're excellent at having a defined goal and there's a couple of paths to get it. It's like those squirrels mm-hmm. from that video. Have you seen this, the, the, this, like the video, there was a viral video. the obstacle courses? Yeah, the, 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 the squirrel yeah. obstacle courses, right? So we have these mental obstacle courses where like the goal is not a bunch of nuts. It's Getting into an elite university or getting a prestigious job, and and there and and for for many of us, Alan DeRiceways wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. I mean, and I think it's kind of like it's uncharitable, but unfortunately, it's it's true in many cases. Is that a lot of us are sort of risk averse and terrified, but 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 like they have to figure it out. But anyway, that, that's why the two sort of careers are consulting and banking, right? Because those are the ones that offer this sort of optionality and the prestige, right? It covers all the bases. Yeah. It's, it's the prestige of working at a McKinsey or a Goldman and, and it's something you go, go home and tell your parents about. They're very happy, yep. but it, it the, and the, the, the sort of the lie and the allure is that it maintains optionality. That's why a lot of people end up at law school. And so anyway, so I, I really, I, I took this course with professor Richard Chell, who I'm fortunately still sort of quite close to. And this is a very good mentor about like called the literature success. And it's really thinking about what success meant to me and gave yep. me some tools. And, and I, and I kind of was, Sort of on a, I, I had a n- number of hypotheses that I just tested afterwards, right? So I, I, I thought I was really into the. I went 
so I because I was good hoop jumper, I had transferred into a warden. Yeah. taking a bunch of like micro and macro the same semester I transferred to Warden. I'm like, okay, let me see like VC is like, so I worked at a VC. It wasn't exactly my cup of tea. And then I'm like, okay, let, I was really into the West Wing. Let's see what it being a speechwriter is, right? So I worked as a speechwriter mm-hmm. for Israel's mission to the UN. Really fantastic experience. Quite actually an intense experience, but I'm again, sort of for a number of reasons, wasn't for me. I said, okay, let's try this tech and entrepreneurship. Did not get into the whole, it's funny. I also like interviewed for a whole bunch of consulting firms. I got a, all the first round interviews and not a single yeah. second round interview. And to this day, this, it's hugely beneficial to me because yeah. I was so, because I guess like I, again, like being kind of a misfit, I didn't really fit into the box, yeah. but I got all the first round interviews and I got the second round interviews. I actually, both two of my mentors, well, Adam Grant and somebody named Seymour Adler, who I knew, both the organizational psychologists, they're like, you should work at, it's funny, they, they sort of came two different, they didn't speak to each other. Adam and Seymour both said, you should work either at Google or at IDEO. And it was kind of like a, 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 a like, like it almost seemed revealed. They're like, yeah. these sort of two, like Leibniz and Newton discovering calculus, yeah. uh, independently, these people figuring things out independently. And I like got, like, Adam connected me to Eric Schmidt, and I spoke with, like, like I got very thing. Did not get an interview at Google. Did not get an interview at IDEO. So I was kind of like wandering. My friend James interview introduced me to Dave Rosen, who's become a very good friend, and they interviewed me at Palantir, where I had this interview where again I was like legitimately myself, and they took me. So I'm like, okay, yeah. like let's find a place that wants somebody who's a little bit out of the box. I worked at Palantir for for a while, and I and I think one of the things that I kind of felt like I was doing better than other people was I was writing these like long epic meeting reports on my own time. Like when I came back from on the train back home, I, I sort of sat down and, and added some reflections on things. And these kind of made their way up. As you said, your podcast, like your podcast have been making their way through the chats. These meeting reports made their way up through the chain. And I ended up meeting with the head of the company, sharing my thoughts and strategy. I'm like, well, I'm really good at, so I'm good at writing and synthesis less so have I less have the passion that I saw other people for like a product manager who's like super detail oriented about like putting the buttons where so I'm like let me go to grad school I'm always really passionate about helping people make workplace workplaces better so I applied I want to be like Adam Grant so I applied to PhD programs in organizational behavior one of my mentors prevailed on me to also take the LSAT and apply to law school he's like just you could whatever anyway so I applied to do that I, I worked in a research lab again testing out hypothesis Probably wasn't the best sort of research lab to work at. It wasn't like, it, it ended up being, for a variety of reasons, I, I didn't find a fit there. Though the, you know, the people, and especially the head of the lab, the head of the lab was huge, a mensch, world-class mensch, and the people there were fine. It just didn't quite fit. And so I decided not to do the PhD, which is like, and then I went to law school kind of by default. And was kind of also a little bit lost there, right? So I, 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 like the first semester was very hard. I'm like, why the hell am I in solo pursuit? Like I really, like we were talking about these cases and I, I was really, it was quite like it was a dark night of the soul. I was fortunately enough, fortunately enough to get married the right before law school, which was big fan of the institution as we talked fan. about. Yep. And then kind of helped. Joe Lonsdale start the Cicero Institute, which has connections to UATX, obviously. 
I connected with basically my whole second year. I, I did a bunch of research in statutory interpretation, which is kind of a niche in the law that I found. I was working, I helped one of my co-founders, Ari Caroline, we started writing a book together on health policy because I was basically working with Joe and then I called Ari because we were working on our, whatever. My wife is teaching, tutoring Ari's daughters and she said, told Ari what I was working on in health policy. She's like, you have to call me. So he already had these broad, huge ideas that, which made a ton of sense, which I hadn't read about. And so I said, we have to, you have to write that. So we started writing some articles, turned it into a book. And then I said, Ari, really, should this be a startup? Like, if you really believe about this, kind of like what we were talking about with in the previous lecture about don't trust the poor macroeconomist. But you shouldn't trust somebody who has these ideas, but then doesn't implement it. He said, that's actually a good idea. He was ready to leave some cuttering. He started a, this startup and whatever, got aqua hired. There wasn't like a clear place for me to join. So by the end, this is quarter of like the middle of my third year of law school. I, 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 I had summered at like, at a, whatever, this is embarrassing, but like speaking about being a misfit, like I, I didn't get like a summer offer after my, so like that is how much, that is like extraordinarily oh, hard to do if you have a pulse. Harry, like yeah. this, is, this is really hard to do. And it just kind of indicated that slow-mo is just, he has this resistance to like fitting in with the mold, even when it's clearly remunerative and it's not hard. So it's like, it's just a, it's just a hard thing. So in my, in my third year, like there wasn't going to fit out because already startup got acquired and there wasn't a clear place for me to fit in. And so I decided to clerk and it kind of fell into the lap. Judge Menashe got confirmed. And I kind of emailed him and that kind of worked out sort of providentially. I clerked for Judge Menashe, which was an unbelievable experience. Uh, I started working at a, at a law firm, kind of wasn't fantastically the best fit, again, for sort of, which I guess now that I'm speaking about you, we're speaking on another for like 16 and a half minutes. Now that I'm speaking about it, that could have been like clearly obvious in retrospect, though I did work on some interesting cases and do enjoy the synthesis but I think there's part of me that likes not just being on the sidelines and really needs to be actively building. And that's, and in many ways, Weave is kind of like my, it's terrifying because it's kind of my dream, dream come true, right? So it's exhilarating. Mm -hmm. It's exhilarating. It's great working with fantastic people on a very important problem. And sort of that, that me in college, which I'm searching for something to how to use my time on earth. And I think this is great and, and how to enable. And I really am trying to make a workplace that is the one I'd, would want to work out and enabling people to use their strengths. And that's something that I really enjoy doing. It's also terrifying because it's like the, the, there's like a natural pessimist in me, which kind of thinks that everything good is going to fall apart eventually so far. But I can acknowledge that and also say that it's really sort of very privileged and, and grateful to be, to be doing that now. Brilliant. Well, you've given me a lot to work with, Slamo. So I really appreciate you going through you just, it. You just click the fucking play button and like <laughs> it's just coin operated. Just uh, yeah, exactly, exactly, and just wow. I've got a, I've got a few questions, and sure. I was wondering, and you could dive in and say what you want. One, did you go to kibbutz? Did I? Did I what? Did you go on kibbutz? I I didn't go on kibbutz, but I did spend a year studying in Israel. Okay. And I spent a year at a religious seminary uh, studying the Talmud and the Torah. And yeah. it's a place called the Gush. And so my Hebrew is pretty good. And my knowledge of yeah. the Israel is, is pretty decent. And that was between high school and college. Yeah. 
And how was that? It was, it was interesting. I think in, in retrospect, it, it, it was a maturing thing. Like when I came to college, I was like a little bit, even that extra year of doing something different. Or you have some people who in law school, they, they call them K through JD, meaning they didn't take off time to work. They didn't take any time. They went straight from kindergarten through law school. Again, like expert hoop jumpers. And spending a year in Israel. I, I think I, part of it, I, I gained friends both in Israel and America there who are really lifelong virtuous friends. And it was really the first place I've kind of fit in. I, like most of the day, like eight hours of the day were spent studying Talmud, which I kind of, the social pressures were sort of that. And I was okay at it. So I think part of it was that I wasn't as, that was an area where I had that sort of moment in that most people they come to Penn, they realize they're not on the top hat. I, I had that at Kush, where the sort of yeah. the smartest people I've encountered were there. And I was not in the smartest, in terms of Talmud learning, smart, the top half, right? Okay. I was, or maybe I was judging myself too hard, but like of the people who are my friend group, I was not the top, which is kind of like, which was sort of for like a relatively immature or sort of like a unevenly developed 18 year old, right? There were parts where I was like extraordinarily mature and parts where I was underbaked. Yeah. Uh, and this was an area where it's was, was underbaked. So I, I got, a, I kind of spent too much time kind of writhing out of that instead mm -hmm. of like sitting and putting my butt in the seat and just sort of sucking it up. So I think, but there are some areas like studying the Torah in the sort of the narrative way, which I felt like a fish in water. And I felt quite natural at it. And it gave me a tremendous amount of insight and joy. So yeah, that is, that is, you know, in many ways still connected to the institution and obviously to the people there. Amazing. So. Yep. Brilliant. A shorter question. You use a term when you go off to your behavioral lab and call one of the, one of the guys, his name escapes me, a mensch. Yeah, a mensch now, is, a, is a sort of a person. For the boys um, out there. Yeah. <laughs> <What> a, <laughs> Sorry, a mensch is a person of integrity and honor. I'm talking to one right now. Thank you, um, Harry. When you said, so that well, shortest way. But the first one you talked about, you said when you were a kid, you had a lot of careers which you didn't find like that you fully clicked with. And I and you mentioned that your mum's a teacher and your father's a doctor. And they're people who I think for most young people have quite an inspirational impact on them when yeah. they think of what their lives are. Both careers, particularly physicians, is like a remunerative career, but also you've talked about wanting to help people. Why did neither of those careers like stick with you? So it's interesting. Just... So I, I'll, I'll tell you my Yoram Hazoni story, which is, okay. so when I was, I spent a year in Israel. I spent a Shabbat with Yoram Hazoni before he was, well, he was a pariah in his wilderness years before he was famous. Yeah. And he's like super famous and it's like controversial. But then he was just like a philosopher who, so I had, he asked me as we were on the way to synagogue Friday night, well, what do you want to do? And at that point I had assumed I was just going to go to medical school and be yeah. a doctor, like my father and his father and then my great grandfather, like, yeah. I feel like Luke is like, I am a Jedi, <laughs> my father and my sister, like, and my yeah. sister. So, and he's like, okay, I'll wait for later. And then, and then basically during dinner, he was talking about these ideas behind the sort of the Tikva Center where he was at, or no, Shalem Center, which is the ideas of blending Jewish philosophy and general philosophy. So he's talking about this. I'm like, oh yeah, the works of John Selden. And I had read books about him and, and like, it, it, I was talking about the Asher articles I was reading and he, he's like, we were talking very passionately about it. He's like, 
but do you read any biology journals for fun? I'm like, no. It's like, any medical journals for fun? He's like, no. He's like, and so why do you want to be a doctor? Mm. And I was like, it was interesting. Like, could follow your sort of, it was kind of open to me that like I have passions and to follow them. And I think the first thing, like I didn't apply to like, a big sort of point in my head was to apply to Penn rather than like Sophie Davis or these sort of combined programs. Ironically now, Harry, like being, for my startup now, being a doctor would have been, would be way more useful <laughs> than being a lawyer. But, but, but I, I, I just sort of, it, it didn't quite, the helping individuals part of it, I don't, I don't know, it, I kind of, it, it was not really where my passions lay, though I do admire doctors. And actually, doctors are the ones who are going to be least impacted by GPT and A, the AI revolution, because people are always going to want the human connection, yeah. whether it's better medicine or not, right? It, a doctor, a robot could provide better medicine, but people are always yeah. going to want doctors. And also part of it was sour that I saw like a, 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 a pretty clear decline between my grandfather's practice and my father's practice through managed care and insurance and sort of squeezing out. And then the, the life of being a doctor was sort of very different and didn't seem super open, which isn't true. Like you can work at a hospital, but if you want it to be sort of like your self-employed sort of solo practitioner, then that wasn't something that would be open. Mm -hmm. Though I did spend in my senior year of high school, I did spend a month or two we had a friend who was the head of Hackensack Hospital, basically shadowing every single specialty. So I do have actually a very good grasp because I thought I was going to be a doctor to do a work study. Yeah. That's what I did. So I, I have a good grasp of the subspecialties and the certain quirks. You can tell very quickly meeting a bunch of doctors, the quirks between them. So it's still certainly on my mind at some point. And being a teacher could be in the future. I would love to yeah. love to teach at university. I think that'd be tons of fun. Yeah. And now, and if my final things are like, well, I'd like to dig a little bit more into law school and the law before we sort of talk about, a few, a, go a bit more later into your life. Like, someone whose understanding of the law is almost entirely based off suits. I feel like that's a poor understanding. So I'd like to you make a macro, co a, a macro question, a micro co question. My macro question is, why is America uniquely litigious? Mm. So I was driving down the, I was in Coachella over the weekend, which is obviously a, quite a spiritual place. And as I was driving down the highway, one of the things that amazed me was how many billboard ads there were yeah. for lawyers. And I think, and I don't know whether that's for legislation reasons or for like good taste. I yeah. have never seen that in any other part of the world. Yeah. And you can advertise like heroin, pretty much so like cigarette. <laughs> you can advertise cigarettes in most parts of the world, for example. Like why is it, why is America so litigious? Do you have any sort of like theory on that? I've never yeah, really asked that. I've never really a, that answer. There's actually a book. If you'll give me two seconds, I could pull up what the name of the book is. I, I, okay. I, we'll have the affiliate link in the, yeah, in the notes. I, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll have to email it to you, but there's a yeah. book that's, why is America so litigious? That is an excellent question. Can we ask ChatGPT? I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask ChatGPT that question because that's a better question. And I have ask for but, but, as well. but, but you, you should yeah. actually you should actually even look at Florida, right? Florida is the plaintiff's lawyer's heaven, right? You see like slips and falls, billboards all over Florida for the industry. And I think in many ways that's not a good thing, right? Like having a litigious society and by extension insurance, mm. right, comes comes by it has actually been a negative net impact on society because people are much less willing to take risks. I would agree. In in many ways. Like you couldn't hire somebody off the street to like these Horatio Alger stories of, of, of rags to riches. You couldn't do that. You couldn't like there's rising credentialing, credential inflation, right? Needs yeah. to 
and and I think it's all sort of for the negative, and that's why you know maybe after this startup is huge success, I have this, I have the vision of like having like a studio of startups because I have like half dozen ideas that I think are are solid. I have I have dozens of ideas which are terrible, but I have yeah. a half dozen solid ideas. But one idea which is solid, which isn't mine, is Arnold Kling's idea of a networked university, which is recreating these sort of the drip of prestige around something much more like an apprenticeship model. Yep. And it's a network-based university rather than university thing. So I think it's it's quite it's quite it's quite a good idea, and it needs somebody to sort of take it and run. And he's he's on the older side, and his mind is sharp as sharp as a razor. But I don't think he doesn't see his strengths as taking things as run and running. But that's kind of kind of my strength. So maybe that that might be my next gig. One second. So let me see. Why is American society so litigious? Let's see. A combination of factors. All right. One, historical and cultural reasons. It relates to the United States has a long history of valuing individual rights. Great. Legal system structure. The United States is based on common law, which relates to court precedents, contingency fees arrangements, maybe access to the courts. There's an accessible legal system, media coverage and public perception. There, financial incentives. No, these are, this isn't really... Getting it. There, 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 there are a bunch of academics who write about this quite well, which and I, I, it escapes me. So my two think questions on it. Oh, I've got probably three theories. One is that there's too many lawyers in this country, and that it's demand generation. Yeah, but that, that's like a, I, I agree. And there's a Peter Churchin has an idea of like the overproduction of elites, with elites that collapses in yep. society, and that's kind of where I think we are in many ways. Like the the. the I think there are way too many lawyers. And part of my other idea is to sort of lead to mass unemployment of lawyers is there are all these generative AI companies that are yeah. out there, like Harvey, speaking of suits, just raised like $21 million. And like, I actually know a little bit about AI now, having been here, and I know about the law. And I kind of think I have like a better idea for how to make a much better product that could actually act as your clerk or as your associate. Now that might lead to more lawsuits, which would not be the problem. But like, I really we should send all the lawyers, Paul Potsire, to like the farms and like have them do farming and something sort of socially yeah. beneficial instead. But but you have to. You're right. You have to look at. I think part of it is demand driven. But I think really, and unlike the sort of the medical system, which sort of heavily regulates the number of doctors, which leads to its own yeah. problems, right? Because we need more doctors. It's actually the number of residency spots, apparently, which are the limiting factor. The law schools mm-hmm. are just incentivized to open more law schools and train more lawyers, even if they don't get. But I think part of it is demand driven, but I think there has to be something there that is where lawyers see jobs open, right? Even if, like, part of it is that, like, after the 2008 crash, like, lots of people went to law school for lack of an alternative. But I think part of it is people see law, law as a stable thing. And I think that the drivers are, are deeper, relates to, for the reasons for litigious or sort of sees law and lawyers as a way of managing the risk that exists in every society. Okay. That's Maybe that's related to it, which is like, there's, there's, there's always sort of risk and how that risk is allocated is, you know, in the government or it, in other societies might, America might have more risk because there's more freedom of action, but the government might take less of it. So I don't know. I don't know. This is actually an area where if, if you'll give me two hours on the internet to read and research, I can have a much better answer, but I, I'm still going to avoid taking now. But I, I, I think part of it is demand generated, but I think there's a, the, why do lawyers go to law school? 
is not only because it for lack of alternatives, but because they see it as a remunerative path. So it, in order for it to be remunerative, there needs to be a demand for it. Yeah. There needs to be, yeah. Okay. Very good. We have a few more minutes until we jump into the rapid fire, but we've talked about how you've recently given birth to your new company, but let's talk about your, your personal life. Like you told me that you got married and you've told, and you've obviously recently had a kid. Let's, let's start with a wife. How'd you meet? Yeah. Tell t- 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 okay. sell us on, I mean, you don't need to put, you, you preach into the choir here, but like yeah. for those who are tuning in on the fence, give us the shlomo two minute defense of marriage and why everyone okay. should get out there and get on board with it. Well, maybe start with your wife's name as well. Well, her name is Amalia. So yeah. now, now somebody who listens to this will fully be able to steal my identity. Yeah, um, you've tried, my, we've triangulated you. Yep. My social security number is two one eight two eight eight. Well, let's think about the reasons people want to get married. Yeah, I think partially people see it as well, what, well. Harry, actually, what do you think are the reasons people don't want to get married? Okay, so. There's, there's won't and can't. So can't, yes. so there's some people who don't have a partner or they have, it's either, it's feast or famine. They have no partner <laughs> or they have two, and this is obviously the rarity, but obviously gets talked about online. Too many partners and maybe not too many partners, but too many choices. Like I observe like people who I know who live in like rural New Zealand and then people who I know who live in London. And everyone who lives in rural New Zealand has like wife, kid, dog, three kids, all that. People at the same age in London, they're like, they're not. And there's a few factors there, but I think one of those factors is that if you're living in a place like London or you're living in New York or one of the great cities of the world, you have, it's like the first time I went to the Cheesecake Factory. Like there are just so many options. Like I don't know what to, you know, you don't know what to pick. And you think, okay, well, this person seems great and she's fine. But what if someone tomorrow is at a is a slightly better cook or is mm-hmm. slightly more friendly to my parents? Or, right. and, and they're there. Yeah. I mean, you're in such a densely populated city that there's probably someone over like two miles away. And for a lot of people, I think that that can be an issue. But then when you sort of, there's a lot of people who then who will say like, I've got the partner, we're in it together. And I sort of see a lot of stuff online which will be along the lines of being married is a bad deal for blokes because there's a massive downside of potentially having a divorce and losing custody of your kids and losing all your assets. That would be the, so they're probably the two arguments that I sort of see online. One is the finding the right person. And once finding the right person, whether marriage is no longer a, and plus we, it might be different in other, in certain communities, but before my wife and I got married, like we lived together, we had the cats together, like, so being married was an important thing for me, but it wasn't a, it wasn't life-changing in the same way that a yeah. hundred years ago was life-changing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give the disclaimer that this is not marriage advice. This is not, I'll give that <laughs> for all the lawyers out there who are going to come see me afterwards. So past performance I, doesn't equal. <laughs> I guess, I guess I can, I can only speak from my own sort of personal experience and from my observations, but I think, yeah. I think there's sort of like, Let's take like a global trends for a second, yeah. and like talk about like why like you got married in like the let's say the eighteen hundreds yeah. for financial security, but also because the sort of the culture was that's what happened, right? That's yeah. that's the the both of those have sort of splintered after in the late 
half the 20th century, right? I think culturally it's become a lot, I, I would say, well, I mean, I think the sexual revolution, the importance of that, I think you're right that the sexual revolution, it, it's, it's sort of really empowered sort of hyper-sexualized male, like males who have a lot of, at least this from my observation of like the yeah. people who really win are the, and, and it's generally immiserating to everybody else. As much as there is the language of liberation, I think in practice, it's, it's, it's immiserating. Not that I want to go back to like 1950s having like, having, having people sort of peeking, peeking into everyone else's business like that. I'm not saying that's a better situation. I'm just saying swinging exactly to the opposite. It's not, not the cost. best either. I think I think there there has to, there has to be some sort of golden mean. But I think also the increasing job opportunities for women have played a huge role. And again, that is a generally a positive trend. But it leads to marriage being delayed. But I think I think you so. And, and in many cases, like people end up who are thinking about getting married, they it's it's much more of like a, a merger of two companies and much less of a startup of people working together. And it's sort of scrappy being young. So there's also like the question of A, to get married and B, if to get married young, both of which I think, yes. And I think for people who are on the fence, I think for for some people, probably a fear of, there's fears of commitment and fear of getting stuck. I mean, a bad marriage is worse than no marriage, right? It's like some, when people get divorced and they see the rates of the divorce, right? That is, that is, that is hard. So you have to, you have to sort of be, careful about it and but also marriage is hard work and you you should read the works of john gottman and and how to put the proper work into it for me i mean the, the thing i keep coming back to is living life backwards right like i think about death meditate on death and you when you think about it like what what do you want to have done in your life who do you want to be around you when you pass away or when you're older even will you, will you, you know as the Beatles said in, for the Beatles, the age was 64 when the average lifetime was 67, now it's going to be, we could think, or 64 or something. And I think there, there are many reasons, but a lot of sort of my friends who, who aren't, they, I, I don't think there's thinking in sufficiently long, longer term sort of time scales. And if you, so if you want like a wife and you want kids and grandkids, which seems to be the best club in the world, then you need to like think by, think about biological clocks. And touch because that is an inescapable fact. And again, I, I don't want to come out here sort of sanctimonious and say like everyone who is single is like miserable. That's not true. And and there are so many different ways in which I'm going to get sort of canceled from this piece here. So I'm trying to I'm trying to hedge it. But I think it's and and I mean the decision to have kids is like is like a big decision. But it's I mean Russ Roberts in his sort of Wild Problems book talks about like if there's this show and that. People, you can't, nobody can tell you what it's going to be like, but it's this amazing show that people who've, who've gone to see it have said it's amazing and it's life-changing and unaltering and it raises your highs and lowers the lows. And it, it's, it's living in, in, in much more multicolored. It's a much richer life way to, to live. So I think family is a core part of is, is, is happiness and you have, to, you have to be intentional about creating it. And, and our societal, the societal forces are not going to, are not necessarily rewarding that versus things like jumping through hoops, right? Like when people, even parents, right? And they think about what they want for their kids. They're not like, I think there's a survey like 80% want financial stability, 20% want them to get married and have grandkids. Like it's not, it's not what we're thinking about, but it is something that needs to be done intentionally. So um, anyway, anyone who wants to talk about it should talk to me and not listen to my generic advice. I'd be happy to, to, to specify and, and to specify it much more, but yeah.
Brilliant. That leads us to the, the lightning round. That's great. Let's tick them off. If you ran for president, what would your slogan be? Ah, damn, I, I just thought of seven bad slogans. I don't know, like keep America sane or lower taxes, <laughs> more, high, lower taxes, higher freedoms. Don't do it unto others as you wouldn't want them to do to you. Could see that on the bumper sticker. That, 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 yeah, it's a kind of long, long one, not really <laughs> slogan. Don't vote for me is probably what I want. Don't vote for me. Yeah, just try and hook people with the reverse psychology. Exactly. Favorite person from the Bible or Torah? King David. And why? Very complex character. Had really sort of, but the idea of like a warrior and a poet is like such an interesting combination. And I think the Torah isn't, isn't shy about his flaws. Yep. But I think it also shows how great of a person he was. And I think pairing that with his sort of the, the insight into his psychology that you get into Psalms is like a really fan- fascinating yeah. combination. I went to a Christian school and I, mean, I, I initially confused King David with King Herod. And I was like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's a hot thing. Yeah, exactly. Finish the sentence. People thinking about going to law school should. Not. Okay. What is the most New York thing about you? My disdain for state income taxes. <laughs> nice. And the least? My lack of rudeness, I guess. Thank you. If Israel wasn't located in the Holy Land, where would you like it to be? Hawaii. Let's go to dispute. Yeah. <laughs> the Pacific Ocean's a good neighbor. Yeah, I guess so. What thing has changed the most since becoming a father that you didn't expect? I've, well, I have not become better with sleep, which is, I expected to, but I haven't, I've just, just crankier. Yep. And I think, I think part of me is a little bit more, in, in, in a sense, this is a shitty answer, but in a, minute, a sense, like I'm, I'm like more fearful about the future. I'm also, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, right? Cause otherwise you don't have kids if you don't yeah. hope about the future, right? Which maybe reason people aren't having kids if they think there's going to be a climate catastrophe around the corner but, but i think i'm optimistic generally but i'm i am like sort of thinking a lot more about sort of the societal like phones for instance right like before i didn't think like kids and phones and and now now that i have a daughter like that is sort of very highly pertinent and like yeah. i am my attentional schemas are like way focused in on that it's not fearful yeah. it's like more like attuned to Rich. socio cultural influences on kids these days nice what is humanity's most redeeming quality Mm. capacity to love nice the worst supreme court decision i only get one yeah (laughs) this is a short episode we're not on the pro plan bro i mean honestly like people will say like dred scott or it's like the Korematsu is like, those are the, the, that's a Japanese internment one. I think, I think Bush v. Gore would did a tremendous blow to the credibility of the court and they could have gotten the same answer by not taking the case. So, but there are so many to choose from. Nice. Bostock, I think was a, was a joke. Even if you agree so, with the outcome, like yeah. that was, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll change it to that. That was like a, that was like, you know, that was sophistry. Give it, give it, give it the two two sentence summary for the non. That was one where they're like, well, transgenders like discrimination on, on the basis of sex, right? So even if you think that, so it's like if discriminating based on sex, 
or it means discriminating based on sexual orientation and discriminating based on sort of transgender, which actually has an, a better argument, right? Because it's connected to sex, sexual stereotypes. Yeah. But like, it's even if you believe, as I do, like you, you should have civil rights protections for people based on their sexual orientation, having the Supreme Court do that through judicial fiat and through such a sophistry, like through a, a law which clearly was not intended as such, was was like was was it just makes me angry. But like on the level of historical wrongs, like that's not like a huge no. like people make a big but like like worse, like I mean Fred Scott like that started the Civil War, like yeah. Korematsu was like a historical injustice to a student and student minority. Like that was those were terrible. But I mean those are like the, the classic anti-canonical yeah. ones, but a lot of people get really sort of like I, I again I studied statutory interpretation in law school. Like yeah. this is the this is what and everyone was like, oh Bostock's like great. And like I'm like, you guys, I'm like the crazy one here. I think this is yeah. like I mean you could you could celebrate the outcome, but like having it through such a ridiculous interpreter like there's no there's no cogent here's the here's the here's the here's the tweetable line. There's no cogent theory of interpretation that can support that decision. Okay. Put that put that yeah. hit hit the retweet button. Yeah. <laughs> Your favorite, your favorite justice. Ooh, currently. Currently. Oh no. Or historically. Within the, yeah, within the last ten years. Oh, I mean, I mean, I love Justice Thomas. Do you? I do. I like Breyer. Most. I mean, you said you did, you did history at Penn. Who's the most misunderstood historical figure? Ooh, I'm Malcolm After X. After King David, Malcolm X. My boy. Behavioral science fact that always impresses you. The ability of of people like anchoring, the anchoring effect. Explain. Like so, I mean we have this on the call, right? Where people say, like, give the first three numbers of your phone of your phone number and mm-hmm. then guess the year in which Genghis, Genghis Khan was killed. Now the, the participant knew the exact answer because he has a freaking podcast about 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 Chinese history, so he knew the answer. Because, yeah. but I but I, I guess the three digit number, whereas the obvious number obviously has four digits. And if I you yeah. would have asked me unprompted, I probably would have said four digits. Yeah. And like this happens if you ask if you give people like people to be anchored, like if you give people words about elder, like people elderly, slow, like decrepit, they will walk more slowly out of the room. Like people, we have this unconscious ability, but I think anchoring is just one that blows me away. Or like the framing effect, right? If you say like yeah. loss of right, loss of you say like one plan will definitely save a boat, or one plan will certainly lose two boats. Like people ha- have wildly different accuracy. So the ability to frame yeah. information, and that actually is, by the way, another startup because we hate old people and we should love <laughs> old people and elder people. We should respect them. We should revere them. And like as a society, we just kind of like we don't even like looking at them. We put them away in like these the terrible places called nursing homes. And like really, that is an area where I think that we just need more smart people working on it because, but it's not, it's not sexy. It's like totally the opposite of sexy. Meaning like we said, I even said that unconsciously I said sexy is like a good thing, but like old people, they are not sexy. They're old. That's fine. And, and, and that's what we need sort of smarter people. We love to vote for them though. I read the other day. That is, that is, yeah, that's true. We love voting and they are a very powerful voting block, which is a problem for the financial security of this country. But yeah. Any other questions? I love these lightning questions. I've got, I've got, my, I've got one last one. I was going to say my fun fact I learned yesterday was that Diane Feinstein yeah. was an intern for JFK. Wow, surprising! She she wasn't one of his like lovers or something. 
I mean, I, don't, I think that's like an opt out of rather than opt in sort of position, but I won't, I won't. I will, before we go to the last one, I will ask you, where's the distance between Shlomo's opinion of Malcolm X and the wider perception? Oh, we have, you, to, it, it's not, it, that's not, it, we don't have enough time. To, we don't have enough time. Well, off the, off the, I'll off see you in Dallas. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that. And the final question, it was similar to what I asked Dave the other day. When your daughter celebrates her 21st birthday, what are the mm. things you'd like to say to her? Wow. I mean, it's one of the crazy things about being a father is like thinking about 20 years, 21 years from now. Yeah. I hope, so like thinking, like just being alive then would be such a privilege yeah. and something I, I wouldn't take for granted. So maybe we could have a surprise party so I could say boo. That sounds fun. <laughs> yep. Maybe she'll be having a life partner already. So like that would be, that would be fun. Yep. So, but yeah. Brilliant. Well, Slama, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. I can't wait to see you in Dallas. And I, I'm looking I look- forward to it too. Anyway, I, I, I really appreciate time and, and thanks for talking. No, I really appreciate it. I know that you're a little bit hesitant to jump on, but I think you've done a fabulous job. So these podcasts wouldn't be the same without <laughs> not, not very only, Not only guests. is my identity going to get stolen, I'm going to be canceled from two day, two six ways from tomorrow. So I ch- so as long as you'll still speak to me, Harry, that, that's good enough. You got a standing, you got a standing invitation at the Federalist Society. Now that we've got a, some, some soft power there, thanks again, Slowe, for having you on, and tune in next week for Carmen, who will be on awesome. the program, our first awesome. foreign guest. Take care, have a great Friday, and see you. Thanks. See you in Dallas. <laughs>